Wouldn't you say that that is probably one of the most famous interactions that Jesus has in the Bible? I mean, everyone has heard, right, about the interaction with Jesus and the adulterous woman. I think there's a reason for that. How many of you have been caught in the very act of something? Nobody? Yeah, me either. Okay, good. I'm glad you have. Yeah, I know you have. But so, um, yeah, right? I mean, everyone relates to this. Is that, that's, I think that's one of the big ones. Man, we all can relate. We can all feel like the, I mean, even in the injustice side of it, we can all feel this. Man, I've been caught. Man, would hate for that to have happened. So there's so much that we can realize with that. This guilt that we have all felt, this shame that we have all felt, and the wondering of what is going to be the consequence of this sin, what's gonna happen? So, so we really need to let this story sink in deep into our hearts to really consider the powerful moment this is in the life of Jesus. Now here's the difference though, not just with the adulterous woman. There is so much more going on here than just what happens with the adulterous woman. And to be honest with you, I think this story, which is found in John chapter 8, is actually not only or even mainly about the adulterous woman. I think it's about the others. Because after this situation happens, a discussion ensues. A dialogue between Jesus and these people that are around as they walk through what goes on here. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the adulterous woman, and we're going to consider that. But we're also going to kind of step it back a little and take a look at John chapter 8 and see what's going on here and what Jesus is trying to get across and what he's trying to teach through this, this life situation of his In John chapter 8, more towards the end of it, in verse 31, he kind of gives us a hint of what's going on. He says this, To the Jews that had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in this interaction with these people, Jesus is teaching a truth, a truth that will set them free. What this message is, what this time in the story of the life of Jesus is, is about freedom. It's about freedom. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want to ask you, what is freedom? And what is the truth that's going to lead to freedom? That's what Jesus is talking about. Have you ever wondered what freedom really is? If I was to ask you right now to just write on a piece of paper, think about it and write on a piece of paper, what does freedom mean for you? What would you say? What would you say freedom is? There's a quote that I read a couple weeks ago, and it's just been haunting me ever since. So you know me, I'd rather just have a bunch of people haunted than just me. So this is what he challenged with. He said, if we carefully examine how we use the word freedom, it becomes apparent that we use it to sanction our perceived right to pursue happiness in a self-interested fashion. Okay, I read that the first time. I was like, oh, what? So I had to read it again. To sanction our perceived right to pursue happiness in a self-interested fashion. You know what he's saying? He's saying that many of us see freedom as being the ability to do whatever I want. And if anyone gets in the way, they're taking away my freedom. 
Is that freedom? Is that how you look at freedom? So I thought that was very, very interesting. Well, this chapter, Jesus is going to talk about freedom. And it starts off with the interaction with the woman, but then it moves on from there, and it gets a little bigger. And I want to basically just narrow it down to three areas. Three areas that I see in this chapter, so I just kind of try to pull out a few things. I want to challenge you to read John chapter 8, if you can, a couple times this week. I just kept reading it through and through and through. There is a lot of interaction in there. Very fascinating chapter. I want to look at three different areas of freedom that I believe we can see here through this time of Jesus' life in the book of John in chapter 8. And the first one is probably the most obvious. It's this that the life of Jesus shows us that freedom is not being condemned for our sins. (sighs) I mean, that's the message we see with his interaction with the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. According to the law of Moses, she deserved to die. She knew it. Everyone else knew it. And when she came out there, she was facing death. They were wanting also to trap Jesus, as the video said. So they also brought her out in front of Jesus. They wanted to know, Jesus, what are you going to say? Are you going to follow the law of Moses and say, yes, stone her, kill her, that's what it says, do it? Or are you going to say, no, let her go? Either way, we're going to get you, right? See, you're not all about forgiveness and grace. Or, yeah, see, you're about the law. Or, ooh, you hate the law? Oh, you're not about that. You're about this. So what's Jesus going to do? And I love what Jesus does. You see it in verse 7 in John 8. You see where he says, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What a powerful, powerful message that is. And look what happens. I love this. At that time, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. You all can understand that that are older, right? It's like us older people. I always think that younger people just don't understand grace because they just haven't sinned as much as me yet. But down the road, they'll get it, right? Any of you still working on like 30 years of repeating the same thing? And you're like, oh, no, you don't even understand grace yet. You know, you're 12. You've repeated it twice. Just wait, right? So the older ones are the first ones to be like, okay, yeah, drop the stone. So the oldest to the youngest started dropping the stones until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there with him. And then I love he approaches, he talks to her. And in verse 10, he straightens up and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. What a beautiful interaction. I mean, I couldn't even imagine the fear that this woman was feeling. Caught in the very act, rocks are in their hands. They're ready to kill her. She is dead. Facing her accusers, Jesus, this teacher that she's heard about, being one of them. And then they all walk away, and Jesus sets her free. Doesn't condemn her either, saying she is not judged, and she's free to go. I mean, Jesus is just just getting us a clarity, changing the way we see things here, changing the way they saw things there. In fact, I I put it like this because I think it's important to think that Jesus had come to liberate humanity from some false ideas about God, one of which is that he wanted sinners condemned and killed. 
I mean, this is what the law of Moses says. She's condemned, kill her. No, that's not what we're doing. He wants them to find life, not death. Hope instead of hopelessness. Forgiveness instead of condemnation. And Jesus' whole life, I mean, we've been hearing about this for the last few weeks as we've been talking the life of Jesus. It seems like every interaction he has has this kind of underlying theme to it, right? This reality of this grace and this mercy of God that is for us, this forgiveness and this hope that we have in him. In Mark chapter 2, I love, because in Mark chapter 2, he goes to Levi's house, the tax collector. He's a sinner. He's invited to a party. There was drinking and carousing going on. They're at this party, and and the religious leaders look at his disciples and goes, what's Jesus doing over there? And I love Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verse 16 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is who I have come for. I've come to set them free from their sins, to help them see hope and life. What about John 3, verse 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that's what we're seeing in John chapter 8. We're seeing this salvation work, this work of God's grace and mercy and love for the sinner. The adulterous woman, you and me, we all can relate. And he invites her into life. And he invites her to experience that life in and through him. Look what he goes on to say as he continues with her. He says, go now, leave your life of sin. And when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I see, I believe when Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin, he was not just like going, you better not do this again or I might not forgive you next time. I think he was inviting her into life. He was inviting her into this light of life, away from this darkness. I mean, she was experiencing darkness, right? I mean, that has been the most darkest moment a human can experience of sitting there ready to be killed for your sin that you were caught in the very act doing. And now he's leading her and saying, now come, experience life instead of death. And then the rest of the chapter, it seems like there's a battle between what this means. They begin to discuss, they begin to talk not with the adulterous woman, but all those that are around, they begin to question him. They begin to wonder where he's coming from, what gives him the right to do this stuff. They're saying, no, no, man, we're judging according to the law of Moses. We have the right to do this. We're doing what's right. And they begin to have this interaction with Jesus. And in, chapter, in John 8, chapter, verse 15, he said this, you judge by human standards. That has just always taken me back in this chapter, just kind of made me stop and think. No, we're doing what the Bible says. It says in the Old Testament to stone the adulterous person. And they're saying, man, you are judging by human standards, but I pass judgment on no one. In reality, the only one that could judge wasn't going to judge. But I love what Jesus goes on and say, but if I do judge, my decisions are right. Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. And they begin to have this discussion. And they begin to wrestle with what's going on here. Tying all this together, Jesus is sitting there saying, Man, your judgment is off. Mine is right. And I'm setting her free. She is not condemned. Her sins 
are forgiven her. And now, the story starts getting crazy because here's what I think is happening. Jesus seems to have more of an issue with the accusers than the accused. He has more issue with the accusers than the accused. And that's where I started getting really, like, not enjoying this chapter a whole bunch. Dealing with the adulterous woman, forgive my sins, awesome. But I began to see myself in the other people as, we, as I journeyed through John chapter 8. And I got really challenged by this idea that he was a little bit more focused on those that were accusing than just the accused. So we got to consider this because this is what life of Jesus teaches. The life of D- Jesus teaches us that freedom is not judging others. That's freedom. When I don't judge, I experience freedom. That's what Jesus is leading them into here. This idea that judging people is not freedom, that's actually we're being held. And it can begin to create so much in and through our lives and our hearts. And the freedom to not judge is a big deal. It's something that I believe the church and Christians have struggled with forever and continue to struggle with it to this day. We struggle with the us and them mentality. Do you ever feel that? I feel it. When I'm reading this and studying, I feel that. Well, I'm not as bad as them. Well, look what they do. Well, those over there. Well, I'm right, they're wrong. Look what those people are doing. Right? The us and them. And when you look at how Jesus dealt with this woman caught in the very act of adultery that deserved to get killed, he completely obliterates the us and them and makes it only us. He takes those that were putting themselves over her and he levels them out. I think it's interesting. One thing I thought when I read these things, my brain just goes a little crazy sometimes. I can see them all walking away, and then Jesus says, you can go now too, and then she just walks away with them. He's like, oh, she's all, well, that was kind of weird, and they're all like, oh. Yeah. It's like, how do we handle this, right? It's like all of a sudden, this person that they were about to kill is like walking out of the courtyard with them, set free by Jesus, and there ain't no way they're going to pick up rocks because they just got jacked too. Man, this story is so amazing. How Jesus makes it an us. I want to look at an us passage for me. Matthew chapter 7 has really caused me to think of us. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes? That's like, why do you look at your brother's sins, his problems, his mistakes? Why do you look at that speck in their eye, but you don't pay attention to this two by four in your eye, right? This idea of like, who are you looking down upon, you know, that you're whacking with a two by four and you're pointing out their speck? Look what he goes on to say. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck, let me fix you, let me take care out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I thought this is an important verse to look at because I want to point out to something, something to you, that this verse does tell us that we're going to walk together in this life. It's not saying that what we do doesn't matter, 
What we do does matter. And when I'm journeying together with those that I'm close to, I'm journeying together with people in my lives, our lives should matter to each other. And even when I see something going on in their lives that I think could be destructive or hurtful or quote-unquote sinful, we should walk together and challenge each other with that. But that's not judging and condemning. That's different. And so I wanted us to take a look at this reality that it's an us type of deal. And when I look at it as an us, not like, well, if you do that again, I will never, you do you know. But we're walking together because, man, yeah, they got specks, but I got planks. And that's what we see in the woman caught in adultery. Whoever is without sin, whoever doesn't have a speck in your eye, cast the stone. And they all walk away. It's not our place to judge, condemn, and accuse And I believe there is freedom in learning to accept others and not needing to point out their sins all the time or the ways I don't agree with them. Oh, we are great at just saying, I just need you to know I don't agree with you. And no matter what, have you ever had one of those awesome conversations with someone? You're talking about things and life and God and what you believe about things. And then all of a sudden it's like, this is really nice. And then they say, but I just want you to know I don't agree with you. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. I mean, it's this constant need to make sure. It's like, it seems like in our culture, it's either I, we have this idea that either I condemn or I'm condoning. Isn't there a lot in between that? There's huge amounts in between that. I don't have to make sure I condemn someone and judge them and tell them I don't agree. I just need to make sure because someone might see me talking with you. And if they don't know I didn't point out your wrongs, they might think I'm all into that too. Can be just so tiring. So I want to set you free today. Christians, we don't need to judge people. (sighs) Does anyone feel good now? Ah, you don't need to. It's not your job. You don't need to go out there and say, I just need to make sure everyone knows what everyone else is wrong but me. And set yourself free, for goodness sakes. To see people, all people, through God's eyes, through God's love, through his grace. It can make a huge, deeply profound impact on your lives. Romans chapter 14 is a verse I just, I just love. It says, except him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, before we move on, we have a lot of disputable matters out there, don't we? we and, and all of us, there's disputable matters that you have figured out and you think everyone else should see it your way. Right? <laughs> right? You understand what I mean? I mean, I've been going through this for, for years at church. You know, I remember earlier on, it's like you go to an R-rated movie, that is bad. PG-13, maybe, but if you're under 13, no. And PG, well, no movies at all. Any movie is of the devil. And any of you grew up in those type of situations? I mean, I didn't know. Well, I would go see a movie. I really liked it, but it was, had an R on it. I'm not going to tell anybody. They're going to look at me and say, no way. Okay, can you have a beer or can you not have a beer? I mean, oh my goodness, there are so many disputable issues out there that we're just pointing and fighting and arguing and banging heads. Now, there are some undisputable issues, I think. 
I think when I think of an undisputable issue, I kind of look out there and kind of go, you know what? God's word has been written on the hearts of man. It says, it says that his law is written on his heart. I think I can look out and kind of determine some non-disputable ones. I think if we all came in here and said, hey, adultery's fine, let's all give it a shot, that even those outside the church would have a problem with that, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would have this like, yay, that sounds great, there's no problems. What about murder? I'm kind of thinking, Murder might be one of those undisputables. No, I think murder's fine. It should just be legal. You don't like your neighbor? Bam, just take care of them. No problem. So I kind of have determined there's a lot of biggies out there that we got to deal with. But the ones we just are dividing and judging and fighting over are disputable ones. So going back to here, passing judgment on disputable matters. Okay, so going on. So he says this, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak is a vegetarian. Or like, or like in my home, a vegan, right? I got two vegans. I always look at this first. You guys are the weaker, weak kids, right? Okay, that's not what he's talking about. Just, and if you, I've had people use this. You know, uh, my boys are vegans and I'm paleo. So we're about as like, eat the meat, save the meat. So this is like a religious issue. This was a big deal. I need to tell you, this was a big deal. Eating food, because there was a lot of laws against what you could not eat. Hooved animals, this animal, this animal, sacrifice to idols, boom. Then you had Gentiles at this time in Romans. You have Gentiles coming into the church. They don't have those rules. We eat anyone. There's anything. (laughs) We eat anything. We eat anything. So they're sitting there going, you got to eat this In-N-Out burger. It's awesome. And they're saying, no, the book of Leviticus says no In-N-Out, right? And they're like fighting. This is a big deal for them. And they're dividing and pointing fingers and accusing people. You don't follow the law of God. Well, you're just legalistic and blah, blah, blah. And so Paul comes in and he's saying, man, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And he goes on, he says, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. And he's trying to teach them this idea, stop pointing fingers on whatever your debatable issues are, because God has accepted that person just like he accepted you through Christ. He accepted the adulterous woman. He didn't condemn her. And those accusing her that were later on accusing Jesus on the cross, he said, forgive them too. Man, we need to start realizing it's us in a lot of ways across the board more than we think. And that could be powerful and freeing when we do this. Look what he goes on to say. And this part's always kind of captured me. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Oh, why serve Jesus? You serve money or cars or TV shows. You serve sport, this, that, oh, because I'm not into that, you are. I just think it's wrong to be so, right? Whatever this means, who are you to judge someone else's servant? I mean, the idea that I'm, I'm looking at them as they're actually serving a different God because they don't see it my way. That's pretty crazy. Then he goes on to his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. Let God take care of their lives. Yeah, we want to walk together and challenge each other, but we're accusing and condemning. We are just doing what we are not called to do. And we could be so set free from that. 
So yes, we are free from being condemned for my sins. That is definitely part of the story. But it's not the only part. In this chapter, we're also being set free from judging one another. And we actually begin to have that picture of seeing each other as us across the board, especially when it comes to the disputable issues, so that we may know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that is freeing. And it took a long time to realize. I, mean, I remember when I used to be like, I'm not going to judge, I'm not going to judge. And inside, I still was feeling it, you know? So I'm pretending like I'm not. And that's where the next step comes in. You see, if we're just going to not judge, like stop judging, stop judging, we need to replace it with something. That's how we are as people. We usually just can't stop something without adding something. Does that, does that make sense? We need to add something new in order to stop. And the discussion here that Jesus gets into gets pretty heated because he says his father, and they're going, oh, our father's Abraham. They're going, oh, father Abraham's not your father. He begins to challenge them, and they get in discussion about Abraham and whose father is their father, and we follow the law. We've not been slaves of anyone. When he says the, the truth will set you free, they're all, we're not slaves of anyone. We're Abraham's. We've already been set free. We're free. He goes, no, you're not. And look what he goes on to say in John 8, 42. This is such a powerful. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. You would love me. But look what he goes on to say. For I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I'm saying. Why? And check this out. Because you belong to your father, the devil. Oh, this is one of those moments that you're like, Jesus, whoa. They're all, we're Father Abraham. Father Abraham, many kids, we're one of them. And he's like, no way. But there's a reason why. Look what he says. Because you want to carry out your father's desire because he was a murderer from the beginning. There, in this chapter, they even says, we don't want to kill anyone. He's all, are you kidding me? Do you remember the rocks you were just picking up just a little while ago? And then guess what happens at the end of the chapter? They get so mad at Jesus, they pick up rocks to kill him. This is like the murder chapter. They want to kill at the beginning. They want to kill at the end. Jesus deals with this reality of judgmental hearts and attitudes. And they get so mad saying, no, we're not like that, that they judge him and want to kill him. And he says that you should have loved me, but you follow your father, the devil, and he is a murderer and a liar. And that's what you are about. They were believing in Jesus, and then they get to the point where they want to kill him. As a matter of fact, that's why I think it's fascinating. He says, you should love me. But you know what? They actually begin to look at Jesus as their enemy. Look what they say in John 8, 48. The Jews, after they talk all about this stuff with Jesus, they said, aren't we right in saying that you're a demon-possessed Samaritan? I mean, if you were here a few weeks ago when Scott talked about the Samaritan woman at the well, you're talking about this, you know, this half Jew, half Gentile, neither one, dog, loser, low life. They get so frustrated. Jesus says, you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. You're our enemy. And he's saying, you should have loved me. And they keep accusing, and ultimately they want to kill him. So here's the bigger picture for me. Not just am I, it's a story freedom from my 
being condemned for my sins and freedom that I don't judge people, that's freedom. But it really comes down to this, that the life of Jesus challenges us that freedom is found in loving others, even our enemies. That's when judgmentalism began to leave my heart a little bit more. If I just fought to not judge, that was one thing. But when I began to focus on loving even those that are hard, it's not easy, but making step towards that, that's when it changed. And that's why this chapter is such a hard challenge for me. See, over the years, so many have used the Bible in ways to justify power and violence and killing to oppress others like that adulterous woman. They were oppressing her. They used it to judge others, to start wars. And I'm not just talking about wars of nations against nations, but we use it to start wars in our own homes with our spouse and our kids. Well, my kid needs to honor and respect me, and he's not. To our neighbors, to our community, to our culture, and all around the world, yes. To divide us into us and them. And here comes Jesus on the scene. And he comes onto the scene and he's showing them that maybe God wasn't quite what they imagined him to be. Because he says, love your neighbor. He says, you should love me and you look at me as your enemy. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, do good to those. They were judging, condemning, and hating because of their views and their view of God. That's what he wants us to do. But then Jesus' life changes that. I want to end in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 with us. And I'm just going to read it. Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to close your eyes. I just want you to listen. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Don't worry. Just close your eyes and listen after what we talked about. Not being condemned for our sins. Freedom of not judging others. And freedom to love others, even our enemies. And Jesus in Luke chapter 6 says this. But I tell you who hear me. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those that curse you and pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to those. Lend to them without expecting anything in return. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because He God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. The story of John 8 begins with Jesus leading a woman to freedom from her sins. A woman caught in the very act of adultery and what a beautiful truth that leads to life. And I hope each of us have trusted that to be true in our own lives. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, our sins are covered and We can trust and believe in him and know that we are forgiven. But when Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he's talking about more than just my sins being forgiven. 
I believe he is painting a picture of the whole, and a whole new way of seeing God and life and others and the world. Not just my own personal salvation and freedom, but true salvation and freedom to all as I don't judge them, but love them as God has loved me. The freedom of not judging, not condemning, not killing, but instead showing mercy, grace, and love. And it's not just to those easy to love, but to everyone, even our enemies. So I want to ask you a question. What's your definition of freedom? What's your definition of freedom? Oh, because the implication of your answer can be life-changing for you and for those around you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this interaction in John 8. There's just so much there. Thank you for just showing us the depth of your ability to forgive. And it's such a beautiful picture. And I pray that each and every one of us has experienced that forgiveness and love and grace from you. But the idea of even more realities of this forgiveness and this hope and this freedom and the freedom to not judge. I just pray that you would begin to work in each and every one of us, giving us this realization, I don't have to judge others. Matter of fact, it's freeing to not. It's freeing to let you, God, do your thing and for me to just love and care and give as you have loved me that I might love them. Help us to experience the freedom that can come from that instead of the you know, the bitterness and the darkness and the anger and the, just the issues that can come as we hold on to things and we don't forgive and we don't love and we judge instead. May we see this as being freedom that you're wanting to lead us into, life and life of abundance. As we celebrate that our sins are forgiven, as we don't judge others but love and accept and care for them instead. May we be thousands of friends advancing this cause cause of your love and grace and mercy for your glory and your honor and praise in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.